So, um, <clears throat> so we've had the opportunity today to um, pick up and deepen this practice of being with the breath and the body and applying this um, training of mindfulness, this original word sati in Pali or shmukti in Sanskrit is translated into the English mindfulness, which in some ways this word mindfulness doesn't really give the full sense. So tonight I'd like to talk a little bit about this training of mindfulness in relationship to the body and perhaps try and bring a a fuller sense to how we can understand this practice and apply it. The literal meaning of the original word is to remember to have this sense of inner reflection, to contemplate. It's not just the activity of bringing attention to our experience, although that's a part of it, in a sort of clinical way of observing, but it also has this faculty of as we become more present, as we are with our experience, with this quality of attentiveness, there's a sort of gathering or remembering that which has been split apart begins to gather back into a wholeness. So as mindfulness increases, it starts to set the ground for this gatheredness of body, mind and heart into awareness. It's called samadhi. So the parts of us that have been unconscious or split apart or numb or held in pain, or held in suffering, start to heal and start to be released from constriction. And we start to be able to feel the sense of of fullness and groundedness and completion a little more as our mindfulness deepens, as (coughs) this, this aspect of the path activity of applying moments of being here, moments of being here, being here in relationship to our experience, however our experience is. Often we're here in a very partial way, as we know, and when, when patterns come up or habits come up or our experience isn't pleasant, we have these very sophisticated ways of almost slipping away from the moment, slipping away from our experience, usually into our thinking processes where we start to think about and that gets quite complex as we start to think about our lives and and what's happening and and then maybe reacting to what's present for us here and there and then the mind starts to create all sorts of worlds that we then become shaped by and dwell in become very real to us and very powerful and before we know it, we've generated a sense of struggle, 
Whereas the activity of mindfulness is the opposite of that. It's actually coming into a fundamental simplicity. It's not a simplicity that denies complexity, but it's, it's the simplicity that's able to withstand complexity without getting caught into the complexity of the mind's creations. That simplicity is a basic sense of sanity or health. It's the health and the sanity of the fundamental nature of the mind in its awareness, in its present nature, in its brilliance. So in a way, a loss of mindfulness is a loss of sanity in some ways. Jen Char teaches to say, if we're not very mindful, we're kind of a little crazy. And we're all a little crazy in a way. So being more mindful, being more present, is a way of reclaiming our original sanity, our original health. And by that I mean our connection. As we become more mindful, more present, we become more connected with this buddhi, this inner wakefulness, this inner knowing, this inner wisdom, this inner awareness that is intelligent, that is wise, that is responsive, that, that knows the best way to respond to the situation. Not so much from our reactivity, but from the knowledge that arises from the depth of being very present with how it is. So, this, in a way, this training of mindfulness begins with something we can really experience and be connected with here and now, the simplicity of our bodily experience. Today we were working with the encouragement in the first foundation of mindfulness. We've been working with the encouragement that the Buddha left to start with being with the breath within the body. So we train this attentiveness to be with the breath within the body. Very simply, noticing the first encouragement or the first training is noticing the long breath, being with the fullness of the whole of the breath and tracking that. So it's a very practical instruction. If we get lost, if we get tripped up, if we get overwhelmed, we can always remember whatever circumstance we happen to be in, we can always remember this remembering this sati, this mindfulness, remember, come back here to the simplicity of being with the breath within the body. And there's something very pleasant about that, something very that's conducive to a fullness or a contentment, the contentment that comes from the utter simplicity of it which we can really become divorced from in our, in our everyday lives when, when things become so much more, um, draw so much more, we have to juggle so much, so much to respond to. One can even feel a bit guilty if we sit here and practice this. You know, one can feel like I should be worrying about something. <laughs> I should be getting more upset about something. I should be responsible for someone. 
So sometimes one has to negotiate with the mind, say, well, you can worry for 10 minutes a day, <laughs> worry about whatever you want to worry about, but then put it aside, as, the, as is encouraged in this training, to learn to not have to always just dwell in the pathways of the mind that lead us into this sense of, of, of heaviness in life or, or anxiety. It's a bit like, sometimes the mind's a bit like, it follows the laws of gravity, we just sink to, the, to its usual patterns. And if we've put a lot of energy into the tendency to get anxious or worried, or numb, or distracted, or disembodied, then that will be our pattern. So as we become more mindful, more present, there will be a certain challenge to that tendency to want to just dwell there. <coughs> but this is why the training is learn- it's almost like learning new pathways or new ways of, of being as we train the mind to be more present we can actually realize we have with mindfulness there's more choice we don't necessarily have to just dwell in the habits of the mind we can just say as, as is encouraged in this first training of establishing mindfulness of the body and breath we can just say not now I'll come to this later. This is a very helpful, skillful means in daily life. Just to be able to say, not now. Sometimes if we don't have the capacity to deal with something, then when we touch something that's difficult, we just are gonna, it's just going to trigger our reactions, our fear, our anxiety, our anger, our upset, our overwhelm. Especially if we're quite sensitive, we, we feel other people's problems and difficulties, we feel the world and its intensity, then if we don't have some capacity to really withdraw the mind from constantly being pulled into reactivity, we're just going to get exhausted and overwhelmed and not be able to respond very skillfully or wisely. You know, our response to deal with that feeling of overwhelm and being triggered will be more towards this this lack of mindfulness, this craziness or our addictiveness, just going to the things that help soothe us, sometimes not in not very skillful ways, just taking ourselves into places that are not very healthy. So to be so this train it is a training and we little by little, rather than looking jumping too far ahead to the goal that we might have in our mind of where we think we need to be, it's just trusting that actually the practices, as I said last night in the the Buddha saying, Magahatikilesawa, this phrase which means the practice is just applying moments of path activity. Patuupati Tamatang is the next line, which means as we apply moments of this practice of say of mindfulness that we're developing today with body and breath. Pati upati means the fruit. Pati means the fruit. Upati means to arise. Tamatang means according to the Dharma. We can't we can't bring the fruit of the practice by an act of will or because we would wish it to be the way that we would want it. I want to be really peaceful, I want to be really wise, I want to be really you know, not suffer. We can't dictate the results from an act of just wishing it to be so, but we can put in place 
the causes to bring that result about. So you don't worry so much about the result because it will come, it will flower, it will come into fruition. Our job is just to have the faith to do it. To be here, to be, to receive. In this regard, receiving and starting to work with our ability to be present within the body, within the breath, in a very simple way, again and again and again, withdrawing the mind. This viveka means to withdraw, to take the mind from places where it suffers. Sometimes the mind is a bit like a, a child. It will sort of wander into not be very careful where it's wandering. It gets burnt, touches a stove. Yes, so you have to shepherd the mind a little, help it, train it. likes to engage, it likes some task to do. Otherwise it just sort of goes into this kind of craziness. And it also resists <laughs> when you give a task. So it's, you know, it's complex. But once one just keeps attracting, attracting mind to engage the practice, then at a certain point it will really enjoy, it will really feel the fruit here and now. So you encourage this, this first training of bringing attention to the body and breath is supported by the skillful use of thinking. It's not that we shouldn't ever think, but we can think, use thought with skill. We can use a thought like coming to the breath, be here now, or the thought that I just mentioned earlier, putho, mantra, or a prayer, or a phrase, being peace, letting go. You can find your own thought forms that really help you to steady, to center. How is it now? Using the question, what's happening now, helps to invite the mind to come into contact with the reality of our experience here and now in our embodiment. So this training, bringing attentiveness again and again and connecting, grounding with the reality of our experience, following the whole of the long breath feeling the subtlety of the short breath where the mind might just, the attentiveness might just focus on the aspect of sensation within the breath body experience and rest there and engage there and then really feel or receive what we've brought our attention to. This is the second training of attentiveness. It's not just bringing the mind, get to the breath, get to the breath in a very yang way all the time, but it's also yin. Attention has a yin or receptive aspect, receiving what we brought our attention to. So, bringing, training, attentiveness, how is it now? How is the body now? How is the breath now? And then receiving what we brought attention to. Feeling, receiving, experiencing. So then, as the, the Buddha said, as we deepen into breath and the body with this training of attentiveness and awareness, we experience the whole body. We can sometimes, if we lose touch with experiencing the whole body, we can breathe more deeply 
three deep breaths or five deep breaths. Really hold the breath deep. Breathe deeply and hold the breath for a moment. You'll, f- you'll feel the body. <laughs> you'll find the body. <laughs> you you feel it. And then, and, the, and then the body likes that attention. And breathe out. Relax. And as this, as the, the, this mindfulness attentiveness starts to become more consistent, then what starts to happen is the beginning of this samadhi or this unified experience the body becomes more infused with the awareness of the mind the body enjoys that and the mind becomes where it's flitting and fickle and sliding off this thought and that memory and story it starts to steady on the slower rhythm of the body it feels the slower rhythm of the body the body feels the illumination, the, lum- the luminosity of the awareness of the mind. The breath and the, and the attentiveness is the bridge. You start to feel some sense of the beginning of this, what's called samadhi, or this gatheredness, this, this unifying, this solidifying, this grounding, this focusing the mind's energy becomes more focused, more powerful. And then that mind, you turn it to a problem, you turn it to a worry, you turn it to an insoluble situation, and it will produce your quantum leaps of insight, the shifts that are needed to approach the difficult situations. a very different quality of mind to bring to life than the mind that's scattered and reactive and crazy. So it's very simple, very doable, but it is, this is the foundation practice. It's not foundation saying it's, you know, it's just, sort of kindergarten and let's get to the PhD practice. This is the practice that the Buddha used on the night of his awakening. The Anapanasati, the being with the inhalation and the exhalation of the breath. It was the practice that opened his whole radical way of insight that made him the Buddha. When he was struggling to, to understand the most profound questions on his quest to explore is there anything that doesn't die in this world? Is it all just impermanent and that's it? This was his quest. And he struggled with that question, tortured himself through trying to crush his body, thinking that was the way. Great ascetic practices. And it was at the point when he nearly, uh, through the taking these practices to the extreme, which were the practices of the time that he lived in, with the other yogis, where they would live in the forests, and they had, I guess, the belief that the problem was the body, the problem was form, that the spiritual life or the transcendent was out of form in some subtle, disembodied state. So the practice was to try and crush the body with will, to try and get to some place, and, and in a certain way, there's a certain way that we can practice with that same within that same template. 
but it's not the insight that the Buddha had. At a certain point, he realized that the body wasn't the problem, actually. It was his relationship, his misunderstanding to the body and about the body. And the insight that changed it was when he was at the point of nearly dying because he had starved himself so much. He was living on one grain of rice. So if he touched his belly, he could feel his backbone. If he scratched his head, his hair would fall out. I mean, it's kind of extreme. He was an extreme, extreme guy, actually. <laughs> Took everything to extreme. He's like a scientist. What will happen if I do this? What will happen if I do that? And then at a certain point, when it wasn't working anymore, two things happened for him. One was that a beautiful, compassionate woman came to him. He'd just fallen over because he was so weak, and she gave him some milk grass to eat. She's a symbol of the world of form, of making an offering and saying, you've got to embrace form, embrace the body. It's not about crushing it or trying to think that the transcendent is out in space somewhere. It's in form. It's within the embodiment. It's within matter, not apart from. So the, the archetype of the young, beautiful maiden, at which point he accepted the milk rice and all his fellow ascetics thought he'd gone soft and abandoned him. So he was utterly alone. Reminds me a bit of the moment of the Christ in the Gethsemane, almost a different story, but that place of being utterly alone and abandoned. But it was also the cusp of finding a whole new way of practice. And, then, and the second thing that happened was he had a memory. He had a memory of when he was a child, of a very innocent place in his being. It's a metaphor for this very it's not an ambitious place, it's not trying to get somewhere, it's not some place of an agenda. If you remember when we were children, <laughs> with that wonderful curiosity and openness, we didn't, weren't slaves to time in the same way. He had a memory of being a child and sitting under the rose apple tree at the ploughing festival of the village, and just sitting there apart from the festival being with the breath and as he was with the breath he started to taste a really joyful fullness of this presence of being and he realized that that was the way it wasn't it was a pleasure that wasn't a pleasure that led to pain as some of our pleasures do but it was the pleasure that was the way to deepen into his path of awakening. So this practice of being with breath, although at first when we haven't, you know, as we're learning to develop skill in it, at first it's not always easy because of the habits of the body and the mind, but it is actually very pleasurable. It's the pleasure, it's called the pleasure born of samadhi, of gatheredness. It's a pleasure that actually as we deepen and taste pleasure of this gatherness, of the fullness of our being, it actually supersedes the pleasures of the senses. So the pleasure of meditation, 
And we can begin to, even in little moments taste, we don't have to wait before we're in an ecstatic, blissful state with tears pouring from our eyes and poetry pouring forth from our... But we can actually even in little moments really notice rather than looking for the big goal and the big bright lights. It's really important in this practice rather than keep also noticing the problems and the difficulties to really notice moments of the pleasure of our embodiment. Pleasure of feeling full and content about being here in the simplicity of our breath, the simplicity of walking in this beautiful natural environment, the simplicity of the silence. And this is all part of cultivating this samadhi or cultivating this mindfulness or cultivating this gatheredness. It's the foundation from which we can then begin to look a bit more deeply. As we look a bit more deeply, as as the sutra of the foundations of mindfulness encourages us, it it starts to encourage us gently. Actually, the Buddha isn't so gentle, but I think it's good for us to go gently, (laughs) actually, for various reasons. We can gently start to really see that this body you know, it's constantly changing, vibrating, sensation, moving. As it said, this body, the experience of the body, we have the external projection of what we, how we see our bodies. And we have an external judgment, perhaps, or critique, or infatuation, or fascination, or dislike, or all the things we project onto the body from our conditioning, from our perceptions, from our comparisons, from what the society says body should look like, from our fear and dread of, of the body maybe not being as well as we would like, or aging and so on. We have this incredible complexity of reaction around the body, other people's bodies, our bodies. So that's one level of our embodiment. And then there's the internal experience, which is very different. It's the experience of pre- you know, experience of the elements of heat, of cold, <coughs> of pressure, of flow, tingling, sensation, the rhythm of the breath. As we become more attuned to the internal experience of the body, the reality, the direct experience of the body, it begins to replace the tendency to get caught in the projective reactivity to our body, what we project and how we react to our body, what we project onto the body and how we react to it. So as we start to ground in this internal experience, then what starts to happen is our relationship to our body becomes one of mindfulness and awareness rather than so much reactivity and judgment and dread and fear and hope and lust. Or if those reactions are happening, we can actually become more conscious of them.
So the sutta starts to encourage us to look internally and externally, to look a little bit more closely at the, the body, not in a, in a verse or disregarding way, but to look into the reality of our body. First of all, we feel the breath, we feel the sensation, we feel it as it's tingling, changing, appearing, disappearing, sense of our experience of the body in terms of the sensations of the body. You can look at the body in terms of the elements, hot, cool, air, liquid, earth, space. And then the sutta goes on to encourage to look at the body also internally, the different organs of the body. It's called the meditation on the 32 parts of the body. Where we start to, in a way, get a more dispassionate. It becomes a bit less personal. It becomes more of an understanding of the body as part of nature than so much our personal possession that we become very constricted about and suffer about. We start to maybe have moments where we can feel this body has its own nature, its own way, it's going to go its own way. There's only one way it's going to go, (laughs) (laughs) ultimately. And in that way it's powerful, it's a powerful teacher to live with. Whatever we have, how much we identify this body as my possession, and in a certain way it is for the time that we have it, it has its own nature, and it is in our possession, ultimately, as we will find out. And as the Buddha himself realized, his first awakening came through really realizing when he saw an aged body, a sick body, a corpse. And he, and he realized these truths of the impermanence of the body really penetrated deeply into his heart, really entered his heart. He opened his heart to these truths and he realized that he said at that point the vanity of permanence and the vanity of youth left him. This extra vanity that we have that would be here forever somehow. This is not a meditation to try and depress us or <laughs> make us feel hopeless. It's, 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 a, it's a meditation to, to awaken us, actually. You know, to also the other side of that is to recognize the preciousness of our human birth, of our embodiment, whatever state our body is in. You know, sometimes sick, sometimes healthy, sometimes drowsy, sometimes full of emotion and feeling and sensitive and overwhelmed. We can, whatever our experience is, we can always use the opportunity to work with the experience. With this breath calming the body, feeling the body, calming the body, with the mindfulness, with the breath, meditation. One of the ways of really helping the body a lot is through this 
working with the breath, the, the contemplation mindfulness of the breath. really helps to to gather the energies of the body, helps to calm the body. Ground, mind within the body. But then where the the sutra and the teaching begins to lead us as we contemplate the nature of the body in this way internally and see its changeability, see its impermanence, see its nature. Then we begin to, the Buddha leads us to the insight to actually contemplate the body in a way where we dwell without clinging well without clinging. It's not doesn't mean that we don't hold and protect and do the best we can by not only our, our, our physical body but the forms of the world that we live with, but we can do so without this extra clinging, this extra tightness, this extra holding. We can do so a little bit more with some sense of relinquishment. So in our practice of this mindfulness of the breath, mindfulness of the body, it begins by helping us to steady, to calm, to focus, to train the mind away from pathways where it leads in us into anxiety and suffering and reactivity. It helps to give us a sense of ground and centeredness. And then it gradually opens us into contemplating the reality of our situation. That we live in a, a world of impermanence, of change. And as we really open to that more and really contemplate that more, rather than seeing it as something that uh, brings us to increasing our clinging and our tightness in regards to the, our relationship to our body and our mind and our hearts and our lives and the lives of others, realizing actually we are encouraged in this practice to, to learn to live in a way where we can let things be a little more, where we can let go, where we can release the clinging of the mind. So this is an invitation it's really an invitation to explore that. What is it to live in a way where we don't have to hold quite so tightly? What is it to live in a way where we can trust? Letting go, and as we let go, deepening our ability to rest in the fundamental presence and peace and awareness of the heart. And from there, allowing a truer response to emerge for our way within the world.
So it's been very lovely to practice together today. I encourage us to to just keep going, just to keep going with the simplicity of this again and again, exploring how is it now? How is it now? And then bringing, rather than trying to figure out how it is now, (laughs) running a PhD about it, the, the invitation in that question is to again and again bring our attentiveness, our awareness into how is our direct experience now? And realizing that can be enough. In a certain way, that's all we can ever do, ever be, is to be fully here now, as fully as we can within our embodiment, within our breath, within the reality of the fast changing world that we actually live within. We can, in this way, we can show up for life in whatever it brings to us. We have the optimum way of responding. I really um, whereas when uh, as some of you know, I've spent many years living in South Africa since um, 1994, since the political changes there. And we have Kitty-san and I started a small hermitage on the border of the Sutu in an area where the First Nation people there, the Khoisan, um, lived. They lived there because they, in a way, they were pushed out of their land, as was so many First Nation peoples across the planet, and um, took refuge up into the mountains impenetrable mountains actually of the of the Uchtlamba mountain range or the Drakensberg. So I got very curious, you know I wasn't brought up in South Africa, I wasn't really know much about the land. I was brought up in London, in the south of England, a bit different. <laughs> and when I arrived there I was curious about these ancient peoples that had been there and were no longer there. They'd been sort of genocided really. It was really a terrible, terrible, terrible history. Um, Shameful history. But one could still feel their spirits, could still feel the spirit very strongly in the art, on the mountains and in the rocks. And when you walk, you can feel the spirit there. So I start to learn a bit more about these people and um, their way of life, which was as hunter-gatherers, was so different in many ways than our ways of life. And was so in tune, not only with the natural world, but also the world of spirits, the world of other dimensions, on the mountain behind where we live, there's paintings of the, um, the shamans wrestling with the rain beasts. 
the Rebus used to live in this mountain where we found ourselves and found ourselves building this hermitage. The rain beast would be, the shaman's job would be to enter the world of the rain beast to control the weather. So it was a very, it wasn't quite the mono-dimensional realities we turn to live in now. They had more channels open. Mm-hmm. What I was interested in, what I, one of the things um, that I was told from people that had lived very closely the Khoisan, and still some uh, living in different pockets, Southern Africa, they're very diminished and under huge pressures. But one of the things that um, was very essential in their culture was that your having been born, you've already made it. That actually everything from there on in is a celebration. And that your primary job in life is just to show up. That's it. You just show up as fully as you can. And then let everything else unfold from there. And this is so, such the Dharma. This is the Dharma. You know, and then we are, and one of the elders of that, those people would said, it's like they were really on track. They were really connected, they were really profoundly connected to the rhythm of the earth, the stars, the whole cosmos, and they lived in that way. And our cultures now are so off track. We're like way off track. We've got got off track somewhere. That we don't we don't know how to show up. We can only show up with so much complexity. We lost this fundamental ability to really tune in to this natural wisdom when we show up fully in our presence, in our awareness, and this is really what this training is helping us to do in very simple ways. Then, uh, then our connection flows, our intuitive wisdom flows. It's all there. The knowledge is there. It's our birthright. We can tap it. We tap it. The more mindful, the more present, <coughs> the more we tap into this fundamental intelligence of the universe, because that is part of our nature, that is our profound nature. So this practice, in a strange way, is bringing us back on track, many thousands of years down the road, from the inheritance of the peoples that live in complete sustainable lifestyles for over 30,000 years. So may we take courage in the fact that here on this retreat our work is just simply to show up for ourselves, for our body, for our breath, for our being, this very simple practice, moment by moment, breath by breath. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org.
www.ghostbusters.org slash donate.